Welcome on into Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg on a Thursday. Are you a good recycler, Avi? Generic response, Cherry. Uh, yes. I don't know. Uh, you don't I, know. They always tell me to respond to the, I've, yeah, I guess. I don't know. What's a good recycler? What's I the have no idea, that? but I know a lot of us are very diligent. We're recycling uh-huh. our soup cans, all those takeout containers, I do that water bottles, okay. folding up and breaking down those cardboard boxes from Amazon. But how much of what we put in the blue bins, how much of that is really being reused or is it just landing in the landfills? We're going to look at how well our recycling system works and what the barriers are to making it more efficient. I like landing in the landfills. That's that cool. Was a yeah. nice term. I try place. to recycle, but I, I'm, I'm really interested in what we're going to talk about today. So we'll I see. decided I am a good recycler. Now. Okay. I considered your question. <laughs> um, are you a good recycler? Do you have thoughts about this? Mm-hmm. Do you care about recycling? Do you have ideas about how to make it work better? or maybe how to just reduce waste in your mm-hmm. life, give us a call. We want to hear from you. 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. Also, later in this segment, Cherry, we're going to talk about Philadelphia's Avenue of the Arts, which is celebrating three decades of bringing music and culture to the city. I need a warning when you're going to do the, Sorry. S- the sing song thing. You make me laugh every time. Um, uh, we have some event tickets, by the mm-hmm. way, to give away as part of that interview coming up in a few minutes. Yeah, and and a young, uber-talented flutist, Julin Chung from the Curtis Institute, stops by to share his love of music and plays some tunes. But first, we're going to dig into the news a little development in the story we talked about on Studio 2 yesterday. We talked about pedestrian safety and mentioned the alleged hit and run of Sixers player um, Kelly Oubre. Well, police now say the surveillance footage shows no evidence that a hit and run occurred. Now, Oubre, who is very new to the city, I will say that, was pretty shaken up when he gave his account to police. He told them he was hit near 15th and Spruce, near his Center City apartment around 7.20 p.m. on Saturday. But police reviewed about two hours of footage near that alleged incident site, and they found no evidence of that hit and run. Now, Oubre claims a silver vehicle hit him in the upper chest area, as it was turning south on Hicks Street, he was treated at the hospital and is said to have a broken rib as well as injuries to his hip and leg. Now, the police have yet, they have not accused Ubre of anything. Um, and so, you know, he could have been confused. I'm not sure. Avi, your thoughts? One of my thoughts is that it's unusual for the police to come out and say we haven't found anything yet. Mm-hmm. Not to say, you know, it's not the end of the investigation. So they're they're signaling something there. However, TMZ, the popular media and sports site, Mm -hmm. did obtain camera footage from his apartment somehow Mm -hmm. that shows him entering the apartment right around when this allegedly occurred, holding his ribs, wheeling a bike and saying to someone out loud in the apartment, hey, I got hit by a car. So there's signals going every which yeah. way here. It's very confusing. People have a lot of interest in the story because of the attachment to the team. And like we talked about yesterday, because this is part of a broader problem, the mm-hmm. the prevalence of hits and runs in Philadelphia. So, um, you know, it's confusing, I guess, is my main reaction. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard to make sense of it. And he's new to the area. He may have given the wrong street. I don't know. We'll see. But, um, of course, 
coach nurse of the Sixers was asked about this. Um, and he said, listen, I don't think it's very fair to say that he's made up some story. He's one of our players and we're going to stand behind him, behind him. So right now the team is standing behind him. We'll see what happens. The investigation continues. Um, but pedestrian deaths and hit and runs and injuries are real. Yep. And heads up. Some streets will be closed this weekend mm-hmm. because the marathons are coming to Philly. Uh, the are. full, the half. If you want a detailed description of what's going to be closed and where the routes are, head on over to PhiladelphiaMarathon.com. Just be aware, could be some traffic snarls in and around Center City. Uh, the AACR Philadelphia Marathon is on Sunday. Mm-hmm. The Dietz and Watson Philadelphia Half Marathon is on Saturday. I didn't realize that Dietz and Watson was the sponsor of the half marathon. Mm. I like that synergy. I do, too. You know, slam a couple of ham sandwiches, run it off. <laughs> run know? it off. Yes, right. I told <laughs> I told you I ran a 10-mile race once, and I ate a Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> gave me Is like that this, the farthest you've ever run? me like, yeah. I'm not a big runner, but I am a cheerer, though. So <laughs> I would be out there with you signs. You are a great cheerer. I, I am. I can vouch for that. I would be loud, and I would be cheering. <laughs> you are a great cheerer. So the farthest you've ever run is 10, 10 miles. 10 miles, and I, thanks to that Krispy Kreme donut, man, I, I was flying. Yeah. I've done 10 miles. That's my yeah, max, too. Yeah, so. My wife's done the full marathon, though. Oh, and it's quite out. an accomplishment. Anyone who finishes mm-hmm. that, my hat off to you. Yeah, for sure. Um, but check it out. If you want to cheer runners on, I heard Maniac has a great spot nineteen between mile 19 and 21. So that's a good time when they really need that cheer. Um, something else happening for the weekend. For all the bookworms out there who can't make it to their free library branch during the week, Good news. The Free Library of Philadelphia is extending its hours into Saturday now. Saturday. Yay. Yeah. Cool. Ten Philadelphia libraries. They will begin operating on Saturdays this week, and the remainder will add weekend hours on a rolling basis over the next several months. The library president, Richards, hopes to have the remainder of the system's 54 branches open on Saturdays by January um, there was a 30% funding increase last year, and they really want people to come out on Saturdays, enjoy your libraries. Yeah. There's probably going to be events and stuff. You can check out books, and they do a whole lot of things. So check out your libraries. You could check out check out the library website, the free library website for Libraries details. used to be open on Saturdays. They did. That's the only time I went. Yeah. It, it was in 2018. They actually stopped operating on Saturdays because of mm-hmm. inadequate funding. So it's nice to have some of those Saturday hours back and hopefully moving toward full restoration because we love our libraries, right, we Cherry? We do. I, I, I really do love my libraries. I was a library of, kid. As, uh, li- yeah, When I was a, would come home from school, I would go to the library first and hang out for like, you know, an hour or so until my mom was ready to pick me up. Absolutely. It was a safe place for a lot of people. By the way, those hours, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturdays. Got it. So check it out. Yeah. One more story to get to before we move to our newsmaker, a rare bird. Mm. You're excited about this, Cherry. A rare bird was spotted in New Jersey for the first time. Big news for Garden State birders. Mm. This bird is called the Limpkin, which I love. It's a great name. Uh, The Limpkin is a long-legged water bird that turned up in Wall Township, Monmouth County this week. You can check out the full story at nj.com. Typically, this bird is found in Florida and South and Central America. But apparently it's been moving into New Jersey, New York, PA, the Mid-Atlantic because it's following the spread of an invasive species of snails, which this bird, the limpkin, Mm. likes to eat. So it's kind of a climate change story, not that happy, but also very exciting for birders who have spotted this thing for the very first time. That would be 
that would be so exciting. Yeah, I to mean, see a bird for the first time. You're looking at birds your whole life. You never seen the limpkin, and then one day a limpkin with swoops the long, right in. Them long legs, <laughs> they just pop up in your neighborhood. By the way, people are flocking here from <laughs> flocking. No, no pun intended. No from pun New intended. Jersey, New York, and for everywhere to just see this this bird before they fly. Cherry, out you're making our next guest laugh out loud when she's not supposed to. <laughs> you can't be that clever. I um, know. So let's let's introduce our newsmaker. Avenue of the Arts is the distinct area of Broad Street teeming with culture and drama and it turns 30 this year. As the Avenue celebrates three decades, it's dealing with some challenges like getting audiences back to theaters after the pandemic shut so many of them down as well as finding resources to make everything from planters to light poles shine as we approach the holiday season. Laura Burkhart is the executive director of Avenue of the Arts Incorporated, and she joins us now in our studio to talk about what's on the horizon. Laura, welcome to Studio Two. Well, thank you, Sherry, and thanks for being such a good friend to the Avenue of the Arts. We appreciate that. Remind folks, Laura, what was this stretch of Broad Street like 30 years ago mm-hmm. before everything got moving? I think that Ed Rendell said you could shoot a cannon down South Broad Street and it wouldn't hit anything mm. um, 30 years ago. this I didn't live here, um, but from what I understand, it was just nothing happening on South Broad Street. And at night, the sidewalks would like roll up. Um, so he really, Ed Rendell was really the architect of the Avenue of the Arts, Inc. He um, saw an opportunity to create a place where most of the theaters and cultural venues could be in one space. People would come there to experience all kinds of arts and culture. And um, now that's what it is. It's a thriving area um, with lots of venues and big changes mm. have happened in 30 years. People now live on South Broad Street on the Avenue of the Arts. Um, Symphony House was built in 2005, I hope, I think, right mm-hmm. around there. And they just and built Art House, which is a Art big House. Uh, yeah, luxury beautiful. condo building mm-hmm. right right there on the same street. Yeah, right? Carl so Janoff still- made a yeah. huge investment in the Avenue of the Arts by opening Symphony House, two other apartment complexes before he opened Art House, which has been open about a year and a half now. Interesting. Interesting. And a uh, great new restaurant has just gone into the first floor to really add life and excitement to that corner. Um, with a restaurant, the Wilma Theater, the Kimmel, Steak 48. It's all happening right there at the corner of Broad and Spurs. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool little space. You drive down the avenue from City Hall. It just looks really cool. So fast forward um, yeah. to present day. We're coming out of the pandemic. What has it been like for you guys? It's been hard. I think everyone's been trying to get people back into their seats, but we're seeing it happen. Wicked has had a tremendous run. Um, we've got a Pulitzer Prize winning play, Fat Ham, opening at the Wilma this month, um, which is really exciting. And they've got, they're selling a ton of tickets. From yeah. Philly's James Imes, uh, by, by the way. way. who was on the show, yes. Oh, he's Shout the out. best. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he was our Visionary Award winner this year. He's just such a great guy, yeah. um, in addition to being a superstar. I think the Avenue of the Arts Visionary Award was almost as important as the Pulitzer to him. <laughs> that's a, that's <laughs> a real Philly person right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so let me ask, though, you said that it has been a struggle. You came on 
2021. Yeah, right in the middle of, of it. You know, yeah, thick of the pandemic. So, is it is it a matter of just convincing people to go back to their old habits, or do you have to? do something different to get people back into theater seats? I think a combination of both. Um, I think that um, everyone's recognizing that there we've got to get people to feel comfortable coming back into Center City. Um, one of the things that's really hurt most of us is that people aren't coming back to the offices. So if you've got people not in the office, they're not buying a ticket to go to a show right yeah. after – um, that was the whole package, right? Yeah. You leave work for the day, you go catch a show, maybe dinner, and then yeah. head back home. Yeah. So, so not a lot of people are in those routines anymore. Yeah, yeah. but we, but I see a sea change. I mean, I really do. I see on the last weekend, I was on the Avenue of the Arts, and the, there was a line around the block to get into Wicked. We have uh, performers out during a lot of the big shows. A program that we do called Avenue of the Arts Live so that people can start to feel the energy before they even go in the theater. That's been a really great program for two years. And um, we've also done some new things to activate the Avenue. This was the third year of the um, arts festival that the Kimmel Center had. All the theaters in the in the city get together. They they discount tickets that day. There's mm. performances that happened in September, and a lot of tickets were sold. There's a great sh- there's great shows coming, so that always helps. Um, I I think we're seeing some new stuff. We have new artistic directors at the Philadelphia Theater Company. Um, Cherry and mm-hmm. I shared yes. a seat at uh, the Lady Day uh, con- uh, event. There's a great Macbeth of Stride, which is a musical I rendition. Yeah. It's fun and exciting. And to see that kind of energy is really, really great. Yeah. And so we, you actually came with gifts. Always. Some tickets. Ooh, always. Yeah, That's a promise, I like it. Laura knows how to, she knows what, yeah, she know knows what to how do. to do it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and so Laura came with tickets in hand, a nice little stack here. And so we have tickets for two great shows happening on the Avenue for the holidays. So one is called Cirque Dreams Holidays. Did I get that right? Cirque Dreams Holidays. Yeah. And it runs Tuesday, December 26th through Sunday, December 31st at the Miller Theater. What's the second one, Cherry? A Very Philly Christmas. It's the show put on by the No Name Pops, and it's running for most of December at Verizon Hall. If you I'll give Laura, like, take 20 seconds and just tell us about the two well, really, really quick. It's Well, the Very Philly Christmas is the No Name Pops. They're back in action. This show is actually produced by the Kimmel Center. And if you saw the No Name Pops in their first concert two weeks ago, you'll know um, people want it. They want to hear that music. And then a very and then Cirque, uh, Cirque yeah, Dreams Cirque. Holidays. I wish quick. I could tell you a lot more about it. <laughs> I really, it's the Philly premiere. I know that. I, I'm sorry. We'll leave it there. But so you can, but you, if you go see it, yeah. it's part of the premiere. You'll be part of a premiere. So you can email Studio, Studio 2. two. Right now and at tell whyy.org. Us, org, yeah. Yes. And tell us right now which show you want to see. We're going to draw winners at random. And thank you to Laura, Burkhart, and all the folks at Avenue of the Arts for sharing these tickets with us. Email studio2 at whyy.org. Coming up, we are talking recycling and we are going out with the number one song on iTunes this morning Jason and Travis Kelsey singing Fairy Tale of South Philly. Take it away, boys. And the bells were ringing out for Christmas.
Christmas Day. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? There's too much trash in the neighborhood. Out on the street, it just don't look good. Now there's something you can do. Drinking food is fine, but when you're through, recycle it. All right, this is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aarons. <laughs> I would recycle more if I just had that playing I know. in my house totally every morning. Too. That is an old New Jersey PSA about recycling, believe it or not. Yesterday was America Recycles Day, which is a day to promote recycling. Mm-hmm. A lot of us have been doing this for a long time now. We toss those plastic bottles into bins. We wash out our peanut butter jars. That's a pain. It Yogurt is. Yogurt containers. We break down cardboard boxes. When you think about it, it's a lot of labor. It is. Recycling. And you might wonder, as you're breaking down those boxes, how much of this actually gets made into something new. Now, I was today years old when I learned this, but when it comes to plastic, only around 6% gets reused. And that's a big deal because we're producing 400 million tons of plastic waste a year. So how do we make recycling more efficient and make sure all this waste doesn't just end up in landfills. We've got two experts with us to talk about what works and what doesn't work in our recycling system. We have Nick Esposito, Director of Policy and Engagement for Circular Philadelphia, and Laura Sullivan, an investigative reporter for NPR who has been reporting on recycling for a number of years. Nick, Laura, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, great to be here. And we want your thoughts on recycling. Do you go out of your way to recycle or reduce the waste that you generate? Maybe you try to buy products made from recycled material. Call us, share your thoughts, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. So uh, only 6% of recycled plastic is actually remade into something else. Oh, my goodness. My mind was a little bit blown there. Say it ain't so. Laura, you've been reporting (laughs) on this for years. Break down the stats on recycling of different materials, and then Nick will come to you for that same question locally. Uh, so I can report to you that the recycling of metals and cardboard and uh, are, are doing great. There are great markets for those. There's a lot of buying power out there for steel and aluminum. Uh, cardboard goes up and down, but it's hanging in there. Paper, same thing. Uh, the plastic, the recycling rate for plastic, and by recycling rate, I do not mean whether or not people are being good citizens and finding a blue bin. I mean, whether or not this product is actually being turned into another item is very low. Um, The highest that the industry's ever gotten is 10% of all plastic produced being turned into something else, and that number has continued to drop. And the latest report um, reporting shows that it's less than 6% now. So out of all the plastic in the world that's produced every single day, and it's a growing number, less than 6% of it's getting turned into something else. And that is because Recycling plastic is, um, as the industry said 30 years ago, almost impossible. 
Why is it almost impossible, Laura? Because I don't think it's the reason that people might assume, which is, oh, I didn't clean the yogurt off of the inside of the yogurt container. Why yeah. is plastic so vexing? Mm -hmm. So the, the oil and gas industry has spent 30 years telling the public that it is their fault that plastic recycling isn't working, that the public has not done a diligent enough job to clean out those cans and get that stuff into a blue bin. This is not true. Our reporting found that... It is the oil and gas industry knew that this was an impossible task to begin with. And that is the science of plastic. When you take aluminum, aluminum is a naturally occurring element on Earth. And it is aluminum, whether you smush it or melt it or whatever you do to reform it. Plastic is made out of oil and gas. And when you break it down, it breaks down into chemical molecules. And it is very difficult to put them back together in a way that is cheaper than doing it from virgin oil that you can pull out of the ground and make brand new plastic really easily and it's clean and it's much more usable than recycling. Recycling is just not economically feasible when it comes to plastic and they've been trying for 30 or 40 years now and haven't been able to do it. It's just difficult for the public after so many years after the industry has spent tens of millions of dollars telling the, the public to recycle plastic to understand this sort of scientific concept behind why plastic doesn't like to be reformed into new things in an economical way. And I, I want to play a clip real quick before we bring Nick into this conversation. I, I want to talk about this campaign to get us to accept plastics. We, I don't know if you remember this. We're going to play this clip real quick. Presenting the possibilities of plastics. Plastics help save you from dents and broken bones. It help protect my patella. They help save energy. Thin light plastics, fewer trucks, less gas. They help save you from being scrambled. They help save the soda. They help food stay fresher. Brussels sprouts? Plastics can even help save toddlers from trouble. And this vest helps save my dad's life. Plastics, plastics make it possible. possible. Plastics make Plastics it possible. Plastics save the patella. Okay. <laughs> and that, just to be clear, that's like from the 90s, yes. right, Laura? And yes. that was when the, the plastics uh, lobby was really trying to revive yes. the image, image of, plastics, of plastics, which had yes. been going down. And yes. one of the ways they did that, Nick, right, was to say, you can recycle this stuff. But mm -hmm. um, you heard what Laura had to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm guessing it's pretty similar here locally. Yeah, and first I just want to say, Laura, your reporting has been so great on this. We cite you all the time, Aww. so thank you so much. Oh, for, thank you. Uh, it makes good, my job way easier. Some good panel love right yeah, there. I like that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, one thing just about plastic is, you know, I, I make this joke all the time, is that, I mean, plastic is a very, very useful thing in that commercial. Like, talking about especially, we wouldn't yes. have a modern medical uh, mm -hmm. system without plastic. But I always joke, like, I don't want to tell my grandkids, you know, 40, 50 years from now, like, oh, we had a great, you know, medicine system back in the day, but we yeah. just used too much plastic making spoons, you know, like, that's crazy, right? Like, we don't want to do that. So we have to figure out a better way to reduce the waste that we're using and then recycle. So you talked about, like, some local numbers. We can yeah. get into that. So, you know, Philly's recycling is in pretty bad shape right now um, through the pandemic into now. Um, before the pandemic, it was at about 23, 24 percent. We're trying to get it up and um and explain that number uh, real quick yeah, 20, yeah. Yes. Exactly. 24 people who recycle yeah. or yeah. so basically when you hear a recycling rate from a city it's taking everything that they've collected curbside from mm -hmm. your trash and your blue bin that's all one number then they just divide it by how much they've collected from the blue bin that tonnage and that's how you get your two numbers this is the rate for recycling so it's that much Got so it. when they say participation it's really how much is going curbside that it's a pretty simple number that we have and so how much of that is being reused or or sold somehow well so that there's those are two different things too right so about 
8% of materials that were getting curbside in the pandemic and through that. I've heard a stat that now the city's up to like 13%. That's what's actually making it to what we call MRFs, the material recovery facility. And that's where recycling gets sorted. So just 8% of all material, maybe 13 now in Philly, is actually, and when you say all material, break I'm sorry, that down. recycling material. So. Um, and that includes plastics, everything that people put in the bins. Every, everything that people put in the bins, which sometimes is more than those MRFs can handle. And the shock face that Avi has right Ooh, now. Okay, yeah. So, I, so the stuff in the blue really bins, low. you're saying 8%, maybe 13% mm-hmm. actually makes it to the stage where it could maybe be reused as something. And then even fewer than that actually and gets And why recycled. so low, low a number? What are some of the reasons? Well, I mean, you know, I liken it back to doing my research is that when the pandemic started, you know, the city was really not prepared for what was going to happen, especially to the workforce, and they were really low on trucks. So they were, and people see this all the time, this is, a, it's documented, they were mixing recycling and trash in the same trucks just to get the stuff off the street and keep up with their routes. That took a long time to rebound, and now that we do have the labor force a little more stabilized, I think people have fallen out of habit a lot with recycling. They're not putting stuff out as much. So they're still, they have a lot of work to do to recorrect from what happened during the pandemic. Okay, so what would be a decent number that would put us on par with, you know, leading cities? Well, I got I mean, I checked in with my friends from Delco earlier because I was like, you know, I just want to be prepared for this interview and got their most current number. And they're at 37% recycling right now. 37. That's just across the board. Yeah. And that's right over the city line. So Delco 37 here, maybe 8, 13, eight or 13. Um, but even wow. 37%, though, uh, Laura, I'll kick it back mm-hmm. to you. Like, we're trying to convince people to do this every day, um, and it does require some of their attention and time. Like, if a mm-hmm. third of it is actually making it, you said to MRFs, right, uh, Nick? Uh, mm-hmm. Is that okay? Can the industry sustain itself on that? Is that a healthy system? Well, I think what's what's really happening, even in that 30% number, is that the metals and the the cardboard are really holding it down the fort of that mm, number. I mean, yeah. those that's where the value is. There's no value in used plastic. This idea that you're going to throw your bottle, your soda bottle, into that blue bin and it's going to become a hairbrush is just advertising. That's just a manufactured sort of myth that was created by the oil and gas industry. And if, and if you look at the soda bottles, especially... Especially, which is like the gold standard because there's so many of them and they're relatively clean and people are like you can pull them off a sorting line a little bit easier than you know the thousands of other kinds of plastic that come across the sorting line those numbers are terrible for the industry and those are and and those are really the only numbers that they make public but those are the best that that they've got and you know they're saying that it ought to, you take all the soda and water bottles that are produced you know, on a given day, only 30% of them are even going to get sent to these MRFs, to these centers that do the recycling. And then from there, they get sent to another processing facility. So they're going to lose 15% there. Then they get to another processing facility, and then they're going to lose another 30-some percent there. And by the time you actually take the gold standard, the the clean water bottle, and turn it into plastic flake, you're down, I mean, you're down by around 50%. And at that point, you're turning it into a product, most of it, the majority of it, more than 50% is being turned into a textile, which then cannot be recycled Mm. again. So all of this effort is going to turn you know something into to it's a you know that's turning into a product that's a you know on a one or two stop 
it's you know, bus street, on the way yeah. to the landfill. I mean, yeah. it's going to the yeah. landfill anyway. In yeah. our in the United States, we have we have strong regulations and and money to pay for good landfills, and we have some space. So we're in a pretty good shape when it comes to all of this incredible amount of trash that plastic trash that we have created. Um, most countries that are developing or don't have the economics that we do do not, and a lot of our sort of dirty recycling where you know they used to try to sell it to China and they closed their doors and now it's going to places like Indonesia when I was there I mean you would go into people's neighborhoods and see our trash trash mm. so it's still going somewhere if you just tuned in sometimes that voice you just heard is Laura Sullivan an investigative reporter for NPR who's been covering the issue of recycling for many years Nick Esposito is also here director of policy and engagement for Circular Philadelphia and I want to bring a caller in since we're talking about plastics, Hillary is from Plymouth Meeting, and she's been working to reduce plastics or her use of plastics. Hillary, tell us your question or comment. You're on Studio 2. Hi. I um, watch what I purchased, so no water bottles that are plastic, and we greatly reduce our consumption of plastic. Sorry, I'm walking. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, I'm going to stop. <laughs> um I buy a lot of stuff in bulk at Weaver's Way Co-op and will bring a plastic or a jar, something that I already have in the house, weigh it and refill it, everything from beans and rice to peanut butter to yeah. oatmeal. Nice. Yeah. So, th- so those are some good tips. Thank you so much, Hillary, uh, and enjoy the rest of the walk. Mm-hmm. Nick yeah. Esposito, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. if we've got plastics... What should we do with them? Should we even bother putting them in the blue bins? And is it does it end up kind of being on us to just stop using this stuff altogether and put the pressure on the companies to change their, their packaging? Man, like, what's the solution? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, Laura said this in the beginning, right? The industry has got a really well-told lie over the 20th century that's saying, like, it, you're responsible for that plastic. You're responsible for the pl- plastic bottle. So we need to really change that thinking and yeah. not put it on the person. I look at it to, like, when I was in, I worked in city government as well, and when I looked at it, like it's like product management and product development. When users are having trouble with a system, right, you can't put it all on them, and you can't blame user error solely on them. If the users are continuing to make the same error over and over, you have to look at the system and remake the system, right? So it's great that the caller now just is trying to do those things, but we need to create those systems. And the systems really come down to basic supply and demand. I mean, my organization, Circular Philadelphia, we are a circular economy. We're trying to remake the economy for designing out waste and then reducing it. So, again, the... the trick about recycling or the basic economics of it is you can recycle anything if you can get the supply right so you need to have a system set up to collect it process it and then get it somewhere and then you have to have the demand you actually have to have someone needing it on the other end so right. as Laura just said you know I you know I got excited I had a pair of shoes and a jacket that's made out of uh, shredded up uh, plastic bottles but there were like 63 bottles under this coat I've had the coat for three years I mean, bottles have been made since yeah, then, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. it's outpacing, so you don't have the supply and demand. And what we're doing, and the organizations we work with, like Glass is a really good example. Hopefully, we can talk about that. We're working with people that can really try to marry the two of those. So one is we have to reduce and get rid of the stuff that you just don't have a demand for right. if you really want it to recycle. Plastics being one of them, we have to severely limit and lower how much we're using plastics in society. Like I said, those spoons, right? Yeah. Um, but then we have to kind of be able to bring an equilibrium, and that's when recycling actually starts to work. That's when you get to a circular economy. Got to ask a question, because New York State just sued Pepsi Company on Wednesday. They have accused the beverage and snack food giant of polluting the environment and endangering public health through a single-use plastic bottles, caps, and wrappers. It is one of the first 
U.S. states to target a major major plastics producer. And um, they've accused Pepsi of basically contributing to a public nuisance. They say 17% of the trash they found in their rivers can be directly traced to specific brands. Laura, Mm -hmm. Nick, I mean, do you expect, I mean, what do you think about this? Just react to the fact that a state AG is now targeting the, 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 the companies that are putting this plastic out. And do you expect to see more suits like this? Yeah, I, I think I think there'll be a lot. And I think California's done a lot of work in this area, too. It's the first I mean, for for 30 or 40 years, you've got everybody sort of standing in a circle, pointing the figures somewhere else. Oil and gas industry is pointing at the public saying, well, it's your fault for not cleaning up your trash. And then the and then at the same time, you've got all of the, the, the products that are in plastic saying, well, it's not our fault because the public wants the product. And and the oil and gas industry gave us these containers. And so we're going to use them because they're cost effective. Meanwhile, they've all sort of battled against, you know, bottle bills and things that would actually encourage people to bring those bottles back. Again, we're just talking about bottles and not the vast amount of other plastic that's produced. The problem with plastic is that there's just so many different kinds of of plastic. Mm -hmm. If we were only dealing with plastic bottles, we could be like, okay, we got this big plastic bottle problem and we're going to solve it the way we solved the aluminum can problem, right? But that's not what we're dealing with out there. We're dealing with thousands of different kinds of plastics that cannot be melted down together. In order to turn plastic into something else, you've got to have a all of one kind. And in the old days, back when, you know, the 1950s and 60s, when plastics were really coming up, there really were just a couple kind of plastics, the real workhorses, you know, the, the, the milk containers and these sort of plastic bottles. But in the intervening years, we've now got hundreds that are regularly seen coming across the And you're asking humans standing on a line, because we have not found a mechanical way to do this, to sort through hundreds of different kinds of plastic. And it's just not possible. Mm. It's just not cost effective. So everybody on a line can pull out an aluminum can, and that has value, and you can smush it and reform it. But when you're looking at all that plastic coming across the line, how is somebody there – are, there are red Solo cups that are five different – every Solo cup is made with a different kind of plastic. Mm. How are you supposed to tell which is which? Strawberry containers, some are one kind and some are another. How, how is any human supposed to know that? And there's just no value there for somebody to even do yeah, that. Yeah, you would need a real eagle eye mm-hmm. to tell those right. solo cups <laughs> apart. Uh, I want to make sure we get at least one more caller in here. This is Sue from Princeton who was on the line, maybe with some more tips about how to reuse things. <laughs> Sue, you are on Studio 2. Thank you. Um, yes, I do. Uh, I've been recycling since the 70s, I think. And I want, just wanted to add to what Hillary said is the things that I do is better to refuse than to recycle. And that the jingle of um, reduce, reuse mm-hmm. and recycle should change to refuse. And and like you don't go buy it in the, the first place store. is what you're saying. That's right. And you go into the grocery store, you look in the produce section, it's full of plastic. The meat you get is full of plastic. It's everywhere. It's hard to avoid, but you talk to the management and you bring your own packaging. I've gone into some big supermarkets and I've just handed my packaging to them and I tell them how much meat I want. And that it, I don't give them a chance to say mm. no. And then another tip is the plastic that comes into your house, you don't need plastic bag liners for the kitchen. Instead, Use a big junk food bag. Uh, use a, a coffee tin that you get. Use shipping bags. 
use uh, cereal bag liners. They're great. They're also good for freezing. Um, take your... Yeah. Just in the interest of time, Sue, and I hate to cut you off, yeah, I just want to make sure we have uh, some time to touch on a few other topics, but those are all great sure. tips. Um, but then more structurally, Nick, what can we do? Because I wish we were all as conscientious yeah. as Sue. As Sue but, yeah. but is there something else that we can do to change the system? For instance, Lisa asked maybe there should be requirements on plastic producing mm-hmm. companies, maybe labeling requirements. I do think California has tiptoed into that. Anything else? Any other ideas structurally? Yeah, luckily enough, there is. So we want to you know applaud the caller and what they're doing. But yeah, to that point, there's a thing that's been around for a long time in Europe and around the world, basically, not really taking hold in the United States, but it is now with California passing their big zero waste bill, is this concept of extended producer responsibility. So this exists in many European countries, it exists in Asia, and basically the concept behind it is if you're going to produce all of this packaging as a company, you are going to get charged for that packaging. So two things happen. One is the more you're getting charged for it, it gives you the incentive to want to, as the company, to lower the amount of packaging that's going in there. And then all of that money that is being collected goes back into much more innovative ways to collect, sort, process, and create that supply and demand that I talked about. Mm. So we actually have a policy that we've put together with our team at Circular Philadelphia around reducing single-use plastics in Philadelphia that is the same type of concept around what they call EPR. Mm. And hopefully that's going to take a lot more of a hold. And again, any company that's here that's saying, well, we couldn't do that, we can't do it, they're already doing it in Europe. Like all yeah. the American companies that are operating there, they're already doing it. Yeah, they're, they sell, the they're selling Pepsi in Hamburg. I'm pretty sure they are. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I know that a lot of folks wanted to know um, how the, how to recycle correctly because I know that only small percentages are going. But I, and some of us maybe wish cycling, and I heard that term. And if you could just quickly define that, and then tell us what are some of the tips that yeah. we can use. I mean, because at least something is being reused, so right? So a couple of things. So wish cycling is that people just, in the blue bin, they throw everything. <laughs> and it's not their fault. They put those chasing arrow yep. symbols on everything. So I know there's a big um, initiative underway by um, some big corp- organization to actually put like more of like a QR code on instead of that chasing like a symbol so you actually can scan it and it'll say if it's recyclable in your area. So that's like a nice step forward. But more so than that, and again, here in the city of Philadelphia, I just want to give some hope here. We have so many amazing companies that are doing really innovative ways to collect this material, separate it, and then make sure that it's getting to a good end use. And a lot of them are our members. I just wanted to touch on glass. And again, I don't want to, you know, Avi's already been scared once, and I want to do it again. (laughs) But glass does not get recycled in the city of Philadelphia. And what happens is because we do it in single stream, it gets crushed, it goes into the truck. Once it gets to the MRF, it goes through this grate, and when everything falls down through the grate, it's little pieces of glass plus plastic and paper. So all it can really do is be used. They use it for, like, landfill cover. So there's, like, I'm going to, you know, give a shout-out to a company here in the city, um, Remark Glass and Bottle Underground. They are at the Bach building. They take a glass bottle, and they'll, like, reform it. They're hmm. a glass-blowing studio into, like, bowls. They do lighting for restaurants, all that these things. awesome. But they have to get a lot. So they're actually doing glass collection. They become, like, a glass collector in the city of Philadelphia. They're getting more than they can handle, so they have to figure out ways that they can get that glass out. And we actually did a project with uh, Olin Architects, which is here in the city, turning that glass back into a sand mix that's used in green stormwater infrastructure. So, again, you're trying to find more of the markets for that. You have arrow aggregates that were the big heroes of the 95 mm-hmm. collapse, you know, that their aggregate went in there. So you have these things that are forming. We just need to support them better in the city, all these businesses. One more quick question. 30 seconds left. A comment here uh, from Stephanie, who's frustrated that the city just dumps things into the trash truck. And I was feeling that frustration too. So Laura, Mm -hmm. really quickly, Mm -hmm. is there a message of hope here so that people don't bail on the whole system just because of the rotten plastic stuff? 
Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. There have been markets in this country that have been vibrant and working for 50 years when it comes to steel and aluminum, and your cardboard certainly has value. Do not give up mm. on those. And if you keep putting it into the stream, somebody will find a way to solve this problem. And by Plastic, the way, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, also, quick comment from Anna who says, this may sound a little sci-fi, but I can't wait until no one has to separate plastic and all waste is converted at a plant into reusable green energy. We would love to see what that What a future too. that would be. Thank you so That's much, great. Laura Sullivan, Nick Esposito, for joining us on Studio 2. Thank you. And you, listener, please stick with us. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, friends, to Studio 2. Hello. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Hello, I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, we get to talk to a lot of talented people on this show. We right? sure do. We're and so it's a lucky. pleasure and a privilege because I don't have any talent. Hey. So I just like being near the talent. Yeah, me too, me too. Hopefully it'll rub off. And sometimes <laughs> they're pretty young. A little too young to be so good at what they do. Well, Julin Chung is a flutist. He's 16 years old. 16 years. 16, a babe in the woods. He's at the Curtis Institute of Music right now training to be a professional. And oh, by the way, he's featured on tomorrow night's episode of TV 12's On Stage at Curtis. And we got to chat with Julian about his big ambitions, what he loves about the instrument, and we actually learned a lot about the flute in the process. We had to start, however, by asking how it all began when he was just six years old. It started with, uh, we were in a, a kid's toy shop, and they had those plastic recorders for sale. And I took one of them home, I remember I couldn't stop playing it in the car while my mom was driving back. Uh, I think I was trying to play Mary Had a Little Lamb or something, something easy. Um, and I was looking up like tutorials on YouTube, and I was watching one that had a flute, not a recorder, but I was watching the flute one. I was trying to figure out how to put it on the recorder. And my dad was like, you got the wrong instrument. You need a flute for that. Uh, tried it for a bit, was just expecting it to be a little small hobby for a little bit and then probably drop it. But then it just kind of slowly escalated more and more and now... Yeah, now it's what I want to do for the rest of my life. What do you love about the flute sound? Like, what mm-hmm. is it that sort of draws you in when you're standing there playing? It's so expressive. It's very similar to the human voice. A lot of people uh, say that. We use the same muscles as the voice, even though I'm a terrible singer. Uh, it's, it's the <laughs> same kind of, it's the same sensibility, and it's the same amount of expression. And it's just, it's the range of repertoire we have, music that we play. It's our place in the orchestra. I love orchestral playing. It's what I want to do. And the way that the flute kind of sits on top of everything. It's a really pristine color in an orchestra. It's and a pristine color. And yeah. Is that the sound you're saying? The sound the is a pristine color. Yeah, when, it, when, when the flute is like perfectly floating on top of the orchestra. It's, it's very pristine and adds this beautiful color. Wow. I love that description. Mm-hmm. When did you realize, wait a second, I'm not just good at this, I'm good 
good at this. Was there a revelation? Not really. I guess it's always something that's been part of what I do every day. You know, there, there might have been baby steps, uh, but there was never like a big moment where it was like, oh, you know, I want to do this, do this. Uh, it was just kind of something I always did and something I always really, really liked. People have called you a prodigy. How do you feel about that word? And how do uh -huh. you see yourself being so young and I picked it up and become so good at it so early? I think the word prodigy is kind of, I don't know, I, I feel a little a little alien from it. It's just, you know, it's something I did for a while and it's something I enjoy a lot. And I've just been really lucky to start it early and have a lot of time to learn how to express myself with the instrument. But when we talk about that word prodigy, mm -hmm. you say it feels alien to you. Because I can sense it, it repels you a little bit. A bit. I don't know. I feel like prodigy kind of implies that there's some sort of, and this is this is kind of a, sort of a hot take, I guess. Prodigy uh, <laughs> implies that there's some sort of like special, like privilege or talent. I guess music is not really about, you know, being a special talent or you know being four years old and playing at Carnegie Hall or something like that. It's just you know it's about expressing yourself and telling your audience something. I guess my, my follow up question there is. The type of music you play, you want to mm. play in an orchestra yeah. and you want to perform. What do you love about classical music? The beautiful thing about classical music that I think isn't represented as well in the mainstream is that, you know, if you want to talk about like Western music, it's the tree trunk beneath all of it. And I think people think that what I explore is just that bottom stump mm. of music. Mm. And then I don't touch anything above it. But I think it's more accurate to kind of see it that I take, I of course study that bottom stump. Everyone's heard of Mozart, Beethoven. Um, but actually the majority of my effort is spent exploring those areas where the branch diverges. Classical music isn't a good way to describe what I'm studying. It's more mm. instrumental music. Classical music, you can kind of trace every modern genre, pop, even some parts of jazz, like jazz harmony. You can trace it all to classical music. And I think people's conception of classical music that it's only kind of music written in the 1800s but that's one period that I spend maybe 20% of my time on mm -hmm. and that there's lots of music like film scores stuff like that we play very similar things mm. all the time things that are way way past that you know I'm playing a piece a couple days actually that was written like six months ago mm. and I play everything from six months ago to like 500 years ago there's pieces that I play that sound like Taylor Swift songs and then there's pieces that I play that sound like random blips and boops and there's horror movie <laughs> music and there's, there's all sorts of diversity, you know, in the 500 years of music that I that I play. Let me um, ask you about the selection you're going to play for us. Mm -hmm. So this is by composer Pierre Octave Faroud. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about the trunk and the branches. This mm -hmm. is one of the branches here? Yeah, you could say so. The piece itself is meant to be very free. It's for solo flute. And I'm on my own, so there's a lot of liberty that I have. Starts off very, you know, calm, and then there's this faster section, and you'll hear you'll hear pretty clearly in the faster section there's these modes of notes very commonly used in East Asian music, and it's put through kind of a French lens.
That's amazing. Boy, those fingers were moving. Those fingers were moving. It's almost like you were doing a bit of a dance as well. Yeah. And and performing with your instrument. Where do you go? Like you you have this this very peaceful look on your face when you're playing. What are you feeling? Where do you go in your mind when you're playing? I think there's an energy that music has. I know there's a lot of people who put like stories to what they're playing. They think of a story. They think of like really specific like events to try and create a mood. I can't really do that. I just, you know, like for the beginning, very it's very calm, and then there's a few bursts of energy. And I just try and put my head in that space. It doesn't matter. There's, you know, there's a few pieces that are so heartbreaking. And I guess that's the beauty of it. Even if I'm like in my happiest mood, I go and I start to play. I'll, I'll just, you know, play one of these pieces that's, you know, very heartbreaking. You know, there's stories behind it. And it kind of takes you to a different, takes you to a different place. <laughs> just sure ride the current of yeah. the mood of the piece yeah. to wherever it takes you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Before we wrap up, I'm curious, what do you do outside of music? You're 16 years old. Mm-hmm. In it's, a city. It's, 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 <laughs> it's not music 24-7. So what do you do? What are you interested in? I like eating. I like, I go, eating. I like going to restaurants. <laughs> okay, um, give me some favorites. Food places in Chinatown. There's this really good dessert place, Mango Mango. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, mm-hmm. I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> there's this really good spot actually inside Suburban Station, uh, Ninja Bao. Ninja? Make, okay. Yeah, I'm definitely know. definitely write that one down for okay. me. They Ninja do like Bao. dumplings. Talk about Bao buns. Yeah, and it's like inside the station. It's kind of hard to find. It's a hidden gem for sure. <laughs> We are definitely going to have to have him back, Avi, for a food segment. That was Julin Chung. His episode of On Stage at Curtis airs at 8.30 tomorrow night on TV12. We got a sneak peek. Definitely want to tune into. Remember the name, Julin Chung. That's right. Here's some more names for you. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager, and you can head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 for more of our show. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us.